And so this shows us then that the Mirasis were crucial to musical life in Punjab um, and, and to, you know, shaping how people uh, learnt music. And so it's, it's really sad that we have this really negative attitude towards Mirasis. Till, in, till today, if you, in colloquial Punjabi, there are these proverbs like Jutti Soti, to bagair na tuye raat nu, teacher na kariye mirasi jaat nu. So don't roam around without a, without uh, your shoes or without a stick at night and don't argue with those of the mirasi caste. Uh, and there's tons of such proverbs which, uh, which encapsulate the fear the Mirasi inspires. And the reason he inspires or any, pers- any member of the Mirasi caste in- inspires this fear is because, um, is because this, in a sense they spoke truth to power, right? Hi, I'm Sukrad Singh from Sikh Archive and welcome to the 56th episode of our podcast series of conversations with historians, authors, academics, researchers and activists on topics related to the areas of expertise on Sikh or Punjabi history. In this episode, we are joined by Radha Kapuria, who is an assistant professor in South Asian history at the University of Durham. Her current research analyzes the impact of the 1947 partition on musicians' lives in India and Pakistan, with her interests centering around South Asian social, cultural and gender history on migration, displacement and borderlands, and conflict, decolonization and culture. And today we will be discussing her book, Music in Colonial Punjab, Courtesans, Bards and Connoisseurs, which examines music's social history for the entire Punjab region. The book is based on her PhD at King's College London, which was shortlisted for the Royal Asiatic Society's 2019 Bailey Prize. But before we start, a quick message about our sponsor of this episode from Six Student Learning, which is an educational resource that is developing a comprehensive Six Studies modular program for sick children aged between 4 to 16 years with the option to take exams for modules and obtain certificates of achievement. And right now they've published a new series of Gurmukhi Learning Workbooks for those looking to learn how to read and write Punjabi. They are an excellent resource for new parents wanting to teach their children the culturally rich mother tongue that is Punjabi. You can find them at www.sixstudentlearning.co.uk. But now, back to the podcast that we have planned for you today. Who is Radha Kapuria? Um, so I'm a historian based at the University of Durham in the UK, but I'm originally from New Delhi. And I come from a family of uh, partition refugees, essentially. So all four of my grandparents were born in what is today Pakistan. Um, And in some ways that kind of defined uh, a lot of my uh, questions. It defined my identity and it led me on a path that uh, where I wanted to study history. And and so here I am. And today we will be discussing the topic of music in colonial Punjab. 
And so out of all of the fields of expertise related to Punjab with respect to your identity, what drew you to the study of music? Yeah, so I think I originally started doing history uh, when I was uh, an 18-year-old. That was the time when India was beginning to see a lot of this right-wing religious discord which has now kind of become part of the mainstream in India. And this disturbed me no end. Um, and so I wanted to study history as a way of understanding what really happened in the past to explain these really polarized attitudes in the present. And of course, because I came from a family affected by partition, uh, I had grown up with this kind of um, slightly uh anti-muslim attitude right because these these were all grandparents who lived through a very violent partition and even though there was this sort of pro right-wing sort of fundamentalist hindu attitude marginally uh, at home that it was it was mixed with a sort of respect for all religions and it's not like my grandfather didn't have Muslim friends and, you know, my mom's best friend is Muslim. So it, it was very confusing because there was this deep hurt. And so I wanted to study not just about partition. I wanted to study about medieval Indian history originally. And I wanted to study about the Mughal era. But when it came to specializing, uh, you know, and choosing what you want to research, um, I ended up sticking to the colonial period because I, I did realize that a lot of the changes uh, in our social and cultural and political lives today uh, accrue from the colonial period. And that really becomes a very important phase in Indian history to study. So I specialized in that and I was actually toying with the idea of researching also agriculture in Punjab because I was part of this anti-GM um, uh, campaign in Delhi for one year. I did this campaigning against BT Brinjal, which was a sort of Monsanto uh, GM modified seed. And so I was quite uh, confused whether I should study agriculture or culture. But then I think eventually it ended up being histories of culture because I grew up listening to so many of these Punjabi tappe and especially at Punjabi weddings where uh, we would listen to songs sung by Pakistani musicians. So this was really, it, it was something that was such a crucial part of my identity. My grandmother, my maternal grandmother, my nani used to actually write songs in Hindi. She used to write bhajans in Hindi. So music was a very important part of growing up. And even though she wrote in Hindi, it was with a Punjabi inflection because, again, because of partition, she they came from Sargodha to central India. So they settled in like Madhya Pradesh, Jabalpur. So... So this was the other thing which goaded me to study Punjab, right? Because I grew up in Delhi. Um, My mom grew up in Bombay. So her uh, Punjabi wasn't very good. Her parents spoke to her in in Hindi or English. So it goes back to Farina Mir's work on uh, the Punjabi language and how there is this, uh, even in the present, there is almost a level of... um, ignorance or sort of especially in South Asia maybe not so much in the diaspora but in South Asia in India the Punjabi Hindus will speak to their kids in Hindi 
And in Pakistan, the Punjabi Muslims will speak to their kids in Urdu. And so Punjabi is kind of demoted to a second status. And this, again, was something that disturbed me. So I wanted to, again, this is why I studied music in colonial Punjab, to kind of get in touch with also um, my cultural roots and to engage with the Punjabi language also in a better way. And just to begin this discussion with the very basics, the definitional aspects, how would you best describe the music of colonial Punjab? How does it take its form and what is the historical trajectory of that? Yeah, so as a historian and not not as, as someone who's not a musicologist, I have learned uh, Indian music as a child and even in some uh, years of adulthood. But I haven't, I'm not a sort of trained uh, musicologist or even any kind of trained musician. So I have not explored what happened to the different genres of music. There have been other scholars who have looked at, so ethnomusicologists have explored this in greater detail. And even though my PhD training was a mix of history and ethnomusicology, um, my, my main sort of contribution is to look at the social and political history of musicians and dancers in colonial Punjab. So what was the conditions of their, uh, you know, material conditions of existence, for example, who, who patronized these musicians and dancers? Where did they perform? What were their lives like? Um, and what was the purpose of music for different people at different points in time in Punjabi history? So, you know, how was music yoked to different social and political agendas? So, uh, so in order to look at this, I looked at two main uh, sort of sites uh, of uh, musical production. I looked at the princely courts, obviously, because the uh, darbars, the royal darbars, or the courts of the maharajas or the nawabs are have been the traditional source of patronage for musicians and dancers. And because this is the colonial period, I started looking at the new middle class musical publics that emerged. So I started looking at these um, new anglicized middle classes that had begun emerging in late 19th century Punjab as a result of um, the British colonial uh, move to uh, you know, ensure education happens in English. So these were the new elites, in a sense, who had joined the colonial bureaucracy and colonial government and how they tried to reform this old musical tradition and uh, how they in turn patronized this music. And so in a sense, I traced the shift in a way from the feudal patronage of the Darbar to that of the middle class uh, modern mehfil, if you will. And I focus because Punjab itself is huge, as we know. And if you look at British Punjab or even colonial Punjab, which includes not just British Punjab, but it looks at the princely states as well, there is a lot to cover. And in a three year or three to four year PhD, you cannot do justice to everything. So I focused on uh, Lahore. So Maharaja Ranjit Singh's Lahore, which is pre-British, and then colonial Lahore, Amritsar and Jalandhar. But I also looked at the princely states of Patiala and Kapoorthala. Um, so this is the kind of broad 
sites of my research for my PhD. And it was it was a really uh, exciting journey because when you're trying to research something as ubiquitous and as fundamental as music, you need to look at it's part of everyday life and you need to look everywhere and anywhere, right? It's not... It's not there in some private papers or some sort of dedicated, hermetically sealed archive. So it's in many, many different archives. And of course, it's also there in oral history and oral narrative. And if we know we've learned anything from studying histories of music on the subcontinent, it is that it's primarily an oral tradition. There is a, there, and there is still a lot of written material to study for the histories of music, but you cannot study histories of music without um, oral testimonies. So it's a mix of these different methodologies that I use to do this research. And in fact, I just described the PhD for you, but if I were to just go back to my uh, initial journey into researching Punjabi music, I did this in New Delhi's Jawaharlal Nehru University at the Center for Historical Studies. And there I did my MPhil dissertation on, uh, it was a micro history. So if the PhD is like a macro view at Punjab as a whole, in some ways, the MPhil was a micro study of the city of Jalandhar and uh, especially of the Harwalab Music Festival, which uh, I was uh, quite surprised to learn when I started my research, I was surprised to learn that this festival was actually the oldest Hindustani classical music festival of all of South Asia. So it went back to 1875 and it still runs today. So it's the oldest extant or the oldest festival that's still running. And this was a really remarkable site of research because um, uh, because it's one festival, you can sort of trace it over a century. You can trace its history. So it became a really exciting research topic for me. And I looked at, apart from interviewing lots of people in Jalandhar about this, and in Jalandhar and in Delhi, where I was based, um, uh, I also looked at newspaper records and newspaper uh, archives, uh, especially of the Punjabi Tribune, um, over a sort of hundred year period to see what has, what are the shifts that have happened. Um, so, and when I looked at the records and the newspaper uh, archives from say the 1920s, the 1930s, uh, I had to kind of look for a needle in a haystack, right? To look for references to this one festival. And I did find those, but what I found overwhelmingly and what I found even more were reports for these musical meetings, these musical sabhas, these musical clubs, essentially, in Lahore, in 1920s, 1930s Lahore. And so this is then what led me to the PhD topic of trying to go beyond just this micro study and look at Punjab as a whole. Can I now ask you more generally about the time period of this study and how the music in Punjab evolved? throughout accordingly. How was it impacted by those in power? Um, so I started with the court of Maharaja Ranjit Singh and initially my aim was to look at uh, the British period uh, solely at the British period and exclusively at the British period and instead when I started looking at the records I found that uh, there was a lot of material on 
Maharaja Ranjit Singh's court. Uh, and so what was initially meant to be two pages of background or two pages of setting the stage for the colonial period turned out to be one of the most important chapters of uh, the PhD and of the forthcoming book. So uh, I in so I sort of traced the the transition in the lives of musicians and dancers from the court of Maharaja Ranjit Singh and then uh, to these British colonial Punjabi cities. And what I found was that, in fact, musicians and dancers were key to the shaping of political power at Maharaja Ranjit Singh's Lahore court. And it turned out that they were really key, actually, really important in shaping the political power at Ranjit Singh's court. So in, in terms of in, in terms of shaping the image of this powerful martial state, which Ranjit Singh set up at Lahore. And um, in a sense, musicians and dancers were very important to this political project of self-fashioning that Ranjit Singh undertook. Um, and this is important because, you know, musicians and dancers are usually seen as a frill to political history. And in fact, until the time I started doing this research, nobody had really uh, looked at these musicians and dancers in any seriousness. Um, it was, in fact, the only uh, way even historians had looked at uh, um, these musicians and dancers were often in the Orientalist trope of the way European travelers and British commentators wrote about these musicians and dancers, which was in a very uh, derogate, derogatory uh, sort of critical vein, which is to say that, oh, this is this is a sign of Maharaja Ranjit Singh's debauchery. And in fact, uh, what I argue is that the very ubiquity of these musicians and dancers at, uh, at the sort of diplomatic negotiations which Ranjit Singh has with the British uh, uh, rivals or with other European uh, travelers to his court was a very important way of his of him representing the power of the Sikh state to uh, to these powerful political enemies and uh, especially his uh, core of Amazon uh, dancing girls they were called Amazons by again European commentators because um, because they dressed uh, as warriors. So Amazon, the Amazons were these Greek warrior women, and so the, these uh, martial women at Ranjit Singh's court were therefore called uh, Amazons. But actually, they weren't doing any martial arts, or they weren't actually uh, engaging in combat in any real way, they were uh, mimicking martial combat on the field. So they were mimicking the Sikh army in the sort of dance they did before these European visitors. And this dance, this whole troupe of dancers was in fact Ranjit Singh's own invention. And he gave an order one fine day in 1831, which is some eight years before he dies. So well into the final years of his reign, well into the time when he has established his uh, his sort of sovereignty as far as Peshawar in the West and as far as Kashmir in the Northeast. 
Um, so he has sort of consolidated his, his empire by this time and he gives an order for the dancing girls of Lahore to dress uh, as soldiers and assemble themselves on horseback and uh, come uh, come to uh, do present themselves to the Maharaja. And this was in honor of a French scientist who was visiting Lahore, Victor Jacquemot, who also uh, did research on all kinds of diseases and also treated the Maharaja. Uh, but the point is that these, uh, these dancers were then sort of uh, devised. It was a sort of, it was an act of cultural engineering by Ranjit Singh to display the power of his state to outsiders. And so this was one specialized troupe of the of these martial, uh, mimic martial dancers. There was also a whole retinue of sort of the usual dancing girls and musicians who were very well off, who were endowed with land grants, who had, who were paid handsomely in jewelry and clothes, and who were really very well off. Uh, at R Ranjit Singh's court. And finally, he also married two Muslim courtesan women, much to the chagrin of um, the Sikh orthodoxy and the Akal Takht. Um, and so he uh, married these women in sort of very public weddings and in sort of defiance of any strictures of not marrying outside the faith, etc. Um, and, and, you know, the first one is Bibi Mora, uh, after whom you have Pul Mora or Pul Kanjri, the bridge of the dancing girl, which is built uh, in Amritsar, uh, near Amritsar. In fact, it's near the Indo-Pak border today, near Vaga. And the other one whom he married later in life was Gul Begum, uh, who was also from Amritsar, like Bibi Mora. And so he married these two women um, and, and, and in, in a sense out of love. Uh, because he had many other wives whom he had married as a sort of political alliance uh, in more in terms of what we could call his political wives. Whereas these two women were definitely not, for, they, he hadn't married them for any political purpose. It was entirely out of, uh, in a sense, out of love. Um, and so I just, uh, and and the research I've done on Ranjit Singh is, only scratching the surface because I don't read Persian and most of the records from Ranjit Singh's court are in Persian and I have only consulted those that have been translated into English. Um, so there is still a lot more to study for the Ranjit Singh uh, court. And so in a sense, from this sort of abundant, lavish uh, condition of the courtesans at Ranjit Singh's court, uh, and in a sense, the sort of very material power, which was visible in the monuments that, say, Bibi Mora built. I spoke of the bridge of the dancing girl, Pul Kanjri or Pul, Pul Mora. And this was built by Ranjit Singh for Bibi Mora. But Bibi Mora herself also built mosques. Uh, she patronized, uh, she built madrasas for Islamic learning. So she was also a patron of education in Lahore. She also uh, gave uh, funds and grants to temples. So she was, despite being a believing Muslim, she was also mindful of the Hindu population. And uh, so she was actually um, uh, quite an interesting figure. 
and even Gul Begum also built. Uh, I mean, she when she died, she was buried in a very lavish tomb. So she ensured that when she dies, she is remembered. So in a sense, courtesans were a very uh, uh, important part of the public display of power in pre-colonial Punjab. And with colonialism, this begins to change. Um, and uh, the in fact, you know, Rani Jinda, who was the last. Queen of Ranjit Singh, who fought the East India Company's attempts to annex uh, Lahore and Punjab, um, she was actually labeled as a dancing girl by the, by Henry Lawrence and by the others in the East India Company. So this was part of the sort of British denigration, part of uh, calling these Sikhs uh, debauched and Orientalized them. And one of uh, Rani Jinda's most trusted right-hand women was uh, Mangla, who was also a dancing girl. And Mangla had the keys to the treasury and the Tosha Khana. And the one of the major, um, one of the major strategies of the East India Company in defeating uh, Rani Jinda was to ensure that Mangla is sent away somewhere else because she was a powerful woman as well. Uh, so and this has been shown by Dr. Priya Atwal in her book Royals and Rebels. So in a sense, this sort of uh, uh, dispossession of the power of the courtesan, and in fact, Gul Begum, uh, uh, despite you know when the British took over, they ensured she received one of the highest pensions because they were afraid of of these women. Uh, you know, already Rani Jinda was a thorn in their side. Gul Begum, let's remember, was yet another wife of Ranjit Singh. And she had massive estates and she was very wealthy. And so the British ensured that, you know, even when they took over, they ensured that her pension was one of the, so it was something to the tune of 12,000 rupees a year at that time. Um, so this is like the exceptional case, but on the whole, uh, this this crumbling of the Lahore court meant that there is no longer a site for the patronage of musicians and dancers. And many of them then migrate to neighboring courts like Jaipur, like Jammu. And uh, one of the main uh, figures who was uh, sort of one of the main male musicians who was uh, Employed at Ranjit Singh's court was Behram Khan, who was a major Drupad exponent who performed Drupad, which is like the original uh, somber and serious and very, uh, uh, very sort of resonant sounding genre of Hindustani music. And he moved to Jaipur um, and uh, the the Dagar Bani tradition of Drupad singing traces its origins to Behram Khan. So Behram Khan was very much employed by Ranjit Singh and then continued uh, his musical uh, employment at Jaipur. And then he trained people who and his students then trained the founders of the Patiala Gharana. So there is a direct link from Lahore to Patiala via Jaipur. Um, and so that's the sort of musical shifts that happened after the crumbling of the Sikh state. Uh, and then with colonialism, there was a whole new range of engagements with Punjabi music. And uh, I can talk about those uh, shortly. Saying that, what was the impact of the British arrival? How did that shift the Punjabi landscape with respect to music? So when the British arrived, there was uh, two things that happened. At one level, they vilified the dancing girl as a sort of symbol of the evil and the sensuousness of the East. 
And so, in a sense, uh, the courtesan was seen simply as a prostitute. And this became a recurring trope in a lot of the writing uh, produced by the British. Um, and apart from that, as we saw, there was this uh, material dispossession of uh, the courtesans uh, and, and, and dancing girls. Um, but also uh, the sort of, in a sense, the sort of ironic side, positive side effect of the British engagement with Punjabi culture was uh, a massive amount of material which they produced uh, on the folk uh, folk culture and folk music and the folk proverbs of Punjab. So, in fact, there was this uh, mania for collecting folklore from the Mirasis and from the bards of Punjab. And uh, the biggest example of this or the most representative uh, uh, book in this regard is Richard Temple's three-volume Legends of the Punjab, which uh, anybody who is interested in Punjabi folklore has to look at. And it's very carefully transcribed Punjabi uh, folk tales and folk narratives which are sung by the Mirasis at this time. The problem with these sort of attempts, and there were others who did this as well, like Charles Swinnerton, Flora Annie Wilson. The problem with this way of collecting folk songs and folk tales from the Mirasis is that the Mirasis themselves are very rarely mentioned by name. And so in a sense, they became what one scholar has called uh, push-button repositories of folk knowledge. Uh, and so while we've got a lot of the songs and, uh, you know, folk tales that have been preserved because of these colonial uh, scholar administrators or colonial ethnographers, uh, we don't really know much about the people they got these stories from. And in a sense, there we see how the colonial uh, attitude towards these bards mapped onto older uh, Indian attitudes as well, older Punjabi attitudes of the upper castes where the Mirasi was seen as uh, what Richard Temple called a rascal or, you know, someone who was seen as a lowly, uh, uh, lowly, uh, wily kind of scheming person. Um, and it's really interesting to see this attitude towards the Mirasis because obviously I'm talking about the British uh, uh, attitude to Mirasis right now. But uh, this built on older uh, Punjabi attitudes uh, which were disparaging towards the Mirasis who were who came from a lower social caste. So they were low in the social hierarchy. Yet they possessed uh, not just folk knowledge, but as I show in my book, that they were also purveyors of, they had this, uh, not, uh, they possessed not just folk knowledge, but they also had uh, knowledge of rag, of classical music. And so the Mirasis are a group who straddle the divide between folk and classical music. Um, and they become uh, the focus of one of my chapters in this book where I look at how colonial scholar administrators engage with Mirasis um, and also how sometimes Christian missionaries uh, engage with them because they, music became a very important part of Christian mission work in Punjab and uh, the pre-existing songs and bhajans were sort of rewritten uh, in a Christian idiom 
and became part of a new uh, new agenda for writing uh, Punjabi Christian hymns at this time as well. So it was uh, English and American missionaries who were at the forefront of this, but they collaborated with Punjabis, uh, with Mirasis and with others on the ground who helped them to translate this. So that is also a very interesting level of engagement with Punjab's music that these uh, that happens in the colonial period. Um, but uh, so if you look at these Mirasis, they were uh, they were sought out by so many people at this time. So if you were a Mirasi in late 19th century Punjab, you would probably be bewildered by the level of interest that is being shown in your culture by these sort of uh, white British outsiders, right? Uh, they're all coming to collect your folk tales. Some of them are even coming to learn music from you. So we have the example of the Scotswoman Anne Wilson, who is responsible for folk tale and folk song collection for Scotland as well. So for Scottish folk music, uh, she is the one who popularized and collected the Skyboat song, which is very popular even till today in Scottish and Celtic folk music. And Anne Wilson was married to James Wilson, who was who sort of administered Shapur district in West Punjab. And she accompanied him traveling into the villages of West Punjab. And initially, and she, she was interested in music and she found Indian music to be bewildering. She couldn't grasp her head around it. And she found it's a form of torture, the way they are singing, they have toothache. So she had all these caricatures of how these people are singing. But over a period of time, and through an, by sort of uh, employing a Mirasi as a music teacher, she started to learn uh, Indian music and she understood how this music works. So uh, the Mirasis also then therefore at this time became uh, cherished for their musical knowledge as well. And when I interviewed Ashwini Kumar uh, in New Delhi in 20, between 2011 and 2014, uh, he, Ashwini Kumar was the man who uh, modernized the Harwala festival of Jalandhar. And he was, a, uh, he was employed as a policeman in the colonial bureaucracy. And later on, he went on to be a very decorated policeman in the Indian state as well. And he remembers as a child in Lahore, uh, having a Mirasi employed by his father to teach the children classical music. So his father, who was one of the first doctors to go and study in England, for example, and they were part of this newly rising middle class, even they had this uh, great thirst to ensure their children understand rag and classical music. And so uh, his father had employed a Mirasi who would sit with his harmonium and try to teach them. And so this shows us then that the Mirasis were crucial to musical life in Punjab. Um, and and to, you know, shaping how people uh, learnt music. And so it's, it's really sad that we have this really negative attitude towards Mirasis. Till, in, till today, if you, in colloquial Punjabi, there are these proverbs like Jutti Soti, To Bagair Na Tuye Raat Nu, Tichar Na Kariye Mirasi Jat Nu. So don't roam around without a, without uh, your shoes or without a stick at night and don't argue with those of the Mirasi caste. 
Uh, and there's tons of such proverbs which uh, which encapsulate the fear the Mirasi inspires. And the reason he inspires or any pers- any member of the Mirasi caste in- inspires this fear is because um, is because this, in a sense, they spoke truth to power, right? They were the satirists, they were the storytellers. And because they came from such a low social uh, background and they were dependent on the higher caste patrons for survival, um, they were literally uh, lived from hand to mouth and were not well off. And so their job was to perform stories, to sing songs. So it was only in the songs and stories that they could uh, offer any resistance. And uh, they did this by, um, by speaking in riddles, by making jokes which were meant to offend and which were meant to sort of critique uh, uh, social uh, hierarchies. So this is why the uh, Mirasi inspired such fear. And one of the most interesting uh, archives that I found in the British Library, which was preserved ironically in the British Library, is a kissa of um, of uh, this man called Police Constable Muhammaduddin. Very interesting name, Muhammaduddin Police Constable, uh, Police Constable, as we can tell from his name, uh, uh, in Gujranwala in the 1890s. And he wrote this 19-page kissa in Punjabi, but written in the Shahmukhi script. And in this, it's essentially a rant against the Mirasis. But it's a very interesting document because while it is filled with cuss words and filled with sort of abuses at the Mirasis, it's also displaying an agenda for musical reform. So this is a pious Muslim police constable who wants the Mirasis, most of whom were also Muslim, to become better Muslims. So the entire uh, rationale of the text is to say that uh, you are uh, you are immoral, you are debauched, you need to become better Muslims. So uh, the text itself is in Punjabi, but the foreword is in chaste Urdu. So again, it's uh, it has it's aiming at itself at different audiences. It's hoping that uh, there will be uh, literate Mirasis who know Urdu who will also read this kissa. And um, as Farina Mir has shown us, the kissas which were printed at this time were meant to be not just read, but they were meant to be uh, read out loud. So they were meant to be orally performed. And uh, so this kissa like. Uh, the other kissas was uh, written in a way that it could be sung as well. Uh, and so the main refrain of the kissa is Baaz mirasi put shaitan gal gal denal hujjat sunan. So he says, some mirasis are sons of the devil. And with every other, uh, with every other moment, they will argue with you. So this entire rant is to say that the Mirasis are argumentative, they they lie, they speak in riddles, they're not to be trusted. And it ends by saying you should become better Muslims by not uh, engaging in uh, promiscuous activities with the kanjris or the, the dancing girls, the sort of uh, low caste group of the dancing girls. So it's a really interesting uh a uh, primary source which uh, was preserved in the British Library. Ironically, it was preserved in the British Library because at this time, 
the colonial British administrators are making these census reports on caste, and they need, and there is a, a sort of obsession with collecting proverbs uh, on produced on caste or uh, 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 or of different caste communities, which are produced by Indians themselves. So this is why a text like this ends up in the archive. And um, the other thing is that Muhammaduddin wanted his text to be purchased at a mission high school. So in the uh, publicity section of the Kissa, he says you can purchase it from Gujranwala's mission high school. So again, it's interesting to see how um, he is connected to this sort of colonial setup as well, because the mission high school was something that emerged very much as a product of colonialism. Um, and so he's uh, offering this agenda for reform of the Mirasis. Uh, and what I uh, sense based on the reading of this Kissa is that Muhammaduddin himself uh, had social proximity to the Mirasis. So given that he has written a Kissa of the kind that the Mirasis themselves performed, and the fact that at many times in the text he says, uh, please don't hate me uh, for telling you this. Please don't hate me for wanting to reform you. And the sort of intimacy with which he speaks uh, shows us that there was a level of proximity uh, to the Mirasis, uh, which many of the others who wrote on the Mirasis or engaged with the Mirasis did not have. So which, of course, that level of proximity was not there with the British colonial uh, administrators. It wasn't there with the middle classes of Punjab who were upper caste and who were sort of really removed at many levels from the Mirasis. And so the other level of music reform happened. The main sort of drive for musical reform came from these upper caste middle classes who again were deeply suspicious of the Mirasis and they wished to ensure that they learned music as these middle classes and upper castes and that especially their women learned this music. And part of ensuring that upper caste middle class women entered the musical public sphere was to vilify the Mirasi, was to say that, oh, uh, the, mu the our music has been associated for far too long with these uh, wily, lowly, immoral Mirasis or Kanjaris, the dancing girls. And so now we are going to reform this music and make it palatable to, uh, you know, chaste, respectable uh, families. And so as part of that reform agenda, uh, the communities that were, that lost out were the communities of traditional uh, performing uh, castes like the Mirasis and Kanjaris. So, as I was saying, the middle classes then had this deep interest in reforming uh, the music of Punjab. And uh, they were influenced, in fact, by a Marathi music reformer, Pandit Vishnu Digambar Paluskar, who came from uh, the Maharashtra region and in fact set up his first school in Lahore. And today his school is famous uh, with, you know, as, as having its headquarters in Bombay, in Mumbai. But the very first school he set up, the Gandhar Mahavidyalay, was actually in Lahore. And this is because the middle classes in Lahore, as I've been describing, especially the Hindu uh, middle classes, were very eager to reform their music and they invited Paluskar to come and teach uh, their music. And this was a very new kind of thing at this time, because as we know, the 
music pedagogy happens in in the south asian musical system through uh, through the gharanas or through the sort of lineage based uh uh schools which are uh, which where the learning is through an attachment with one guru or ustad and so that one teacher will shape your entire musical journey uh but if you set up a school for music that is a modern institution uh it, it's trying to shape uh, you know model itself on the western uh school uh model so this was very interesting and vishnu digambar paluskar uh, as janki bakhle has shown was very much about uh making this music not just modern but also casting it in a hindu devotional mold so a sort of obsession with again purifying this music of uh you know and sort of going back to some ancient hindu past and uh dissociating uh the contribution of the muslims and especially the mirasis um and this then uh paved the way for uh a lot of purification of music movements and one of the most uh, famous ones in punjab at this time was actually called quite literally the punjab purity association and their main objective the agenda of this association was to garner what they call opinions on the notch question so this was part of the anti notch campaign which had started in south india and then had uh, also uh, moved to the north and this was essentially about uh, abolishing the practice of, of watching dances by the courtesans and dancing girls and so this was uh, as we can see this was an entire campaign to outlaw an entire group of performers and the opinions on the notch question which is again preserved in the british library is a really interesting document because it's everybody whom from whom it has solicited in from uh, opinions they're all men there's not even one woman and they're obviously talking about what to do with these dancing girls and most contributors said that yes we should outlaw the notch many people uh, very proudly uh, proclaimed that they have stopped hosting uh, dancing girls at their weddings and other private family functions um a few few of the contributors did say that uh, we need to find an alternative to the notch uh, otherwise there will be no outlet uh, for you know there there needs to be some entertainment for uh, people to deal with the sort of uh, uh, you know difficulties of everyday life um so you know these are the kinds of moves to uh, reform music in the cities of lahore of amritsar jalandhar and this uh, period was the 1880s 1890s when this sort of anti mirasi anti uh, kanji or anti dancing girl movement began but if you look at uh, hindu reform bodies like the arya samaj which were very uh, key for the punjabi hindu community and in fact you know they ensured that singing bhajans was part of the sort of uh, aryas arya dharma or arya religion uh at the very initial or the at the earliest uh, meetings of the arya samaj in punjab and let's remember that the arya samaj as well is from gujarat it started in west india very much like paluskar the music reformer who came from west india to punjab and 
uh, at the earliest meetings of the Arya Samaj in Lahore, the people who sang these Hindu bhajans were actually a troop of Mirasis. And this was noticed by a British commentator who attended this prayer meeting. And he, uh, you know, with his uh, belief in communities being X, Y, or Z, or communities being uh, uh, fundamentally uh, different from each other, he was aghast to note that how can these Muslim musicians be singing at a so-called Hindu or a Vedic uh, a religious meeting? And it's interesting to note this because uh, as, you know, in the 1870s and 80s, when the Arya Samaj is beginning, it is quite impossible to find any uh, music musicians who are from, who are not from the Mirasi caste. So it's impossible at this time to find any musicians who would be able to sing at your meetings who were not Mirasis because uh, music and singing was something that was, essentially uh, the preserve of the Mirasi community. So when it begins, the Arya Samaji meetings begin, in, in if you look at it historically, they begin with Mirasi musicians, but just two decades down the line, they are vilifying these Mirasis, uh, you know, dissociate themselves from Mirasis. Uh, this is entirely a mechanism to ensure that upper, uh, upper caste, middle class uh, women and in general, upper caste, middle class people can start learning music. And the only way they feel they can uh, attract this new audience to music and this new uh, uh, constituency who can practice this music is by uh, dissociating it from the Mirasis. So that is the kind of uh, history of middle class reform in uh, Punjab at this time. And can I now ask you what the significance of the princely patronage and the royal courts of Patiala were like? Yeah, so uh, I think I've been talking about the middle class wave of reform and how music was shaped by that in late 19th century Lahore, Amritsar, Jalandhar. But equally, let's remember that it was at the princely courts, at the darbars, that uh, musicians were most... Um, uh, most abundantly employed. And it was at the Darbar of the Patiala Maharajas, for example, that uh, the most well-known gharana or lineage of uh, classical music in Punjab emerged. Um, and that in itself is an interesting story because um, part of the motivation of my research uh, was to see the many trajectories of classical music in Punjab, which have been, in a sense, sidelined due to many reasons, um, which I will come to later. And I do think that partition is one of the main reasons that we've forgotten about this memory of the classical in Punjab. Uh, but also, I think the fact that it's just a Patiala Gharana that emerges as representative of, um, you know, the classical in Punjabi music is interesting because there was a lot of classical music in different cities and different parts of Punjab. But I think what happens is that with the collapse of the Sikh state in Lahore, or with the collapse of Maharaja Ranjit Singh's empire, in a sense, in 1849, he dies in 1839, but there's 10 years of uh, rivalry and 
fighting, infighting by the different Sikh claimants to power. And in 1849, Lahore is annexed by the East India Company officials. And as a result, Lahore shifts from being a courtly center to a capital of a colonial sort of administration, right? It becomes uh, a sort of colonial city. And this shift also means that lots of musicians and dancers then travel away from Lahore to neighboring uh, princely states like Jaipur or Jammu or uh, Patiala as well. And in fact, the most well-known uh, musicians at Patiala, especially the founders, Ustad uh, Ali Baksh and Fateh Ali, who were known as uh, Jarnail and Karnail because they were seen as the general and the colonel of this uh, of this strand of music. They were taught by Ustad Behram Khan, who was employed at Maharaja Ranjit Singh's court. Uh, Behram Khan was a Drupad musician. And uh, Behram Khan then moved to Jaipur and he trained a famous courtesan called Gokhi Bai. And Gokhi Bai then trained Ali Bakshfateh Ali. And in a sense, then the trajectory that came through Lahore via Jaipur ends up in Patiala. And Patiala then emerges as this signature Punjabi royal lineage. And of course, Patiala also had a sort of leadership, not just in music, but in other cultural terms for all of Punjab. The royal court set the standard, whether it's in architecture or painting. And like with painting and architecture, there was an amalgamation of the different styles of Pahari traditions, of Rajput traditions of painting, for example, from neighboring Rajasthan. And so in Patiala, we see a new kind of cultural uh, sort of uh, wave or cultural. In Patiala, we see a new cultural tradition emerging, which is formed of the amalgamation of all these different uh, courts which surround it. Uh, and it takes inspiration from both the Rajput and the sort of Raj Rajasthan princely states and from the Pahari or the hill states. Um, and... Uh, what is really interesting about this hybridity at Patiala is that uh, it, we see the patronage of classical music, but that goes hand in hand with the patronage of Sikh Kirtan music as well, especially at this time uh, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, there is a greater uh, slant towards Sikh devotional music, which uh, kings like Maharaja Bhupinder Singh, for example, patronize. Uh, and yet, despite the slant towards Sikh devotional music, the older sort of strand of sensual uh, classical music still persists. So this is evident in a text called the Guru Nanak Prakash, which is a genealogy of the Patiala ruling dynasty written by Diwan Gurmukh Singh, who was then the finance minister of the Patiala state. And this was completed in 1891 during the reign of Maharaja Rajinder Singh, who died in 1900. And this text is a lithograph, which has also watercolor paintings depicting the Patiala royal dynasty from its origins. And it's essentially, apart from being a genealogy, it's a manual of princely conduct, how you should behave as a prince, uh, as a Sikh prince. And has it's, it has sort of commentaries on the Sikh religious texts as well. Um, and what's really interesting is that 
there are these beautiful passages on music which are used to critique uh, 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 ostensibly to critique a lifestyle of sensuality but even in critiquing this lifestyle of sensuality divan gurmukh singh shows you just how much uh, knowledge he has as a connoisseur of classical music so in there's this example he uses of a layman who wants to live for one day as a prince and this layman imagines himself as the prince and you know he has uh, it's it's written in very flowery urdu Uh, and it says that he imagines that he is an all-powerful monarch, and there is a painting to represent him as the all-powerful monarch of all time. And in fact, rulers from across time come to pay homage to this powerful king. So there's Alexander, Jamshed, Nasherwan, Bahadur Shah Zafar, and even like European rulers are bestowing him with gifts. uh and similarly while there is this power at court this is parallel parallelly there is power in terms of uh this man being a connoisseur of the of the arts he's listening to a variety of music sung by this beautiful courtesan who's called channi begum so this is all in this man's imagination and when uh gurmukh singh describes this man enjoying the music he refers to uh how the rags have Uh, when chandni begum starts singing the rags uh, appeared embodied as the statues uh, so they are embodied along with their 30 raginis so the impact of the music is such that it changes the world around it changes the people uh, and the rag and raginis themselves uh, uh, you know deign to come down and and reveal themselves and embody themselves in front of these human listeners So in a sense even though Divan Gurmukh Singh is critiquing the sensuality of this uh tradition of uh elite culture at the same time the description shows you just how much a uh, knowledge he has of classical music and the idiom and how much he talks about the knowledge of um the different ragas what effect they have on people and in a sense this connects to maharaja ranjit singh the language with which music is described in terms of the impact music has on people uh you know that the raga and raginis have appeared as statues when this person is singing this same language was used in maharaja ranjit singh's uh, uh court chronicles in persian where uh you know his uh, court chronicler sohanlal suri would say that the courtesans could make the audience like pictures on the wall like the audience would be stunned or they would be uh, you know stunned into uh, silence and they would become like pictures on the wall by listening to the music of the courtesans so in a sense there is this really interesting connection in terms of the language that is used to describe music as well and um I think finally uh at uh, I mean this is to show you just how interesting the strands of sensuality are because obviously classical music is for the longest time been connected with this life of excess and hedonism and sensuality as well um and uh, uh in Patiala both the sort of reformed religious strand of Sikh uh, liturgical music Uh, coexists with this other strand of um, sensual uh, music of uh, coexists with this strand of sensual classical music 
equally important, however, uh, you know, equally important as the main exponents of the Sikh uh, tradition of music. And there's, you know, people like Bhai Bhuba or Bhuba Rababi and Mahant Gajja Singh who are trained in the classical, but they are also shaping an agenda for Sikh devotional music. Uh, along with these men, there are also a range of uh, unknown or shall we say lesser known now forgotten figures whom I've discovered in the archives. And these men uh, are in a sense, they leave their trace only in the archive. And when you speak to uh, people from the Patiala Gharana today, musicians who practice practice, um, who are practitioners of the Patiala tradition today, uh, the names that remain with people in oral history are of those people who are from the Patiala family or of their direct students. But figures like Ralla Dhadi or Fazal Rababi or Kehar Singh, all of these are people whom I found in the archives at Patiala. Uh, their stories survive only in the archives and the reason they survive in the archives and these are from the 1930s in Patiala, it is mainly to do with musicians lamenting the lack of remuneration and the sort of uh, decline in their salaries, the decline in uh, renewal of pensions. Uh, and it's really interesting to see how uh, and, and the other kind of context in which these uh, musicians show up in the archives is when uh, there is a vacant post for a rababi or a ragi. And then there is an interview, an audition held to sort of, uh, uh, you know, appoint a new musician to this post. So this, you know, this makes for really interesting archival material on musicians. Um, and um, it shows you how norms of recruitment were becoming aligned with sort of modernity of a sort of Western modernity where there would uh, be uh, an audition and there would be letters of recommendation, which these musicians would have to bring into audition, which is quite odd to imagine that a musician would now need to bring a letter of recommendation to ensure that he is or she is, uh, 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 you know, reviewed in a positive light. It should it should ideally only, um, uh, uh, you know, depend on their musical talent. But this shifts with this sort of modern period. And in a sense, the Patiala princely court is adopting practices borrowed from a sort of colonial uh, bureaucratic mold. Um, so there's this uh, level of material at uh, uh, at Patiala. Equally in neighboring Kapurthala state, which is also a, a sm slightly smaller princely court, but equally important in patronizing music. Uh, Kapurthala, like Patiala, welcomed musicians, uh, especially after the revolt of 1857, when a lot of musicians left uh, the Mughal court at Delhi. And uh, they they then migrated to uh, centers like Patiala and Kapurthala. And in fact, at Patiala, one of the main uh, court musicians at the Mughal court at Delhi, uh, Mia Tanras Khan, is said to have come to Patiala. And he as well taught uh, uh, Ali Bakshan Fateh Ali, Alia Fatu or Jarnel Karnel, uh, the main duo, the founding duo of the Patiala Gharana. Similarly, in Kapurthala, we have uh, the Mughal court musician Mir Nasir Ahmed, who was saved by the Kapurthala ruler Kumar Bikramjit Singh, uh, 
from being sent into exile. So Bikramjit Singh offered Mir Nasir Ahmed refuge at Kapoorthala where he lived for the remainder of his life. And Mir Nasir Ahmed was a leading bean player at Delhi. He was a bean car and uh, he, you know, there's some compositions in sitar which are attributed to him. Um, and also, uh, he was also seen as being a, a master of Drupad singing, of the Khandari Bani, of Drupad singing. So he was not just an instrumentalist, but also a vocalist. And uh, it's interesting how he then trains another great instrumentalist whom I mentioned earlier, uh, Bhai Buba or Mia Mehboob Ali or Buba Rababi, who then went on to train the uh, Mahant Gajja Singh of Patiala, who founded a sort of Sikh devotional form of music as well. Uh, so there was a connection between Kapoorthala and Patiala in terms of uh, musicians learning from each other. Um, equally, uh, the famous Pakistani folk musician Tufel Niyazi was also trained in uh, a, a gharana of classical music in Punjab. Uh, he was trained by a musician named Sai Ilyas, who was uh, from the Sham Charasi gharana of Punjab. Um, and uh, similarly, there is another connection of Sai Ilyas, the Sham Charasi gharana, to another Punjabi singer from Sialkot called Rehmat Khan. And Rehmat Khan's daughter married... Mola Baksh, who founded the Baroda School of Music in Gujarat. So he went to the Prince Theatre of Baroda. And in fact, uh, uh, Rahmat Khan's son, uh, you know, this man uh, who's, uh, who married the daughter of Mola Baksh, this man's son became Suf Hazrat Inayat, uh, Sufi Inayat Khan, the man who founded this famous uh, Sufi order in the West and who was also a musician himself. And you may have heard about Sufi Inayat Khan through his more famous daughter, Noor Inayat Khan, who was involved with, uh, you know, fighting the Nazis in the Second World War. And there is, in fact, a bust of Noor Inayat Khan in, uh, in Bloomsbury, in, I think, in Gordon Square. Uh, so there is this really interesting connection, uh, you know, which links these musicians through their children and grandchildren to the history of the uh, Indian diaspora in Europe as well. Uh, but to go back to this whole uh, idea of these musicians migrating from Kapoorthala and going to Patiala and going to Baroda, it shows you that there is a sort of significant geography around which these musicians are then migrating and moving and which kind of connects these different musicians together. And I also mentioned Maula Baksh, who founded the Baroda School of Music. He came from Bhivani, which is in present-day Haryana, which was at that time considered to be part of sort of British Punjab. So uh, there are these musicians from the broad Punjab region who are then migrating across, crisscrossing across the subcontinent in search uh, of musical opportunities, um, and and it shows you how musicians are all, also a peripatetic group, and they're constantly moving around in you know in in search of patronage and audiences. And this whole idea of the musician as a peripatetic, a mobile figure, is uh, is revealed most starkly when you think about partition. And I think partition is really important because. It's a forced migration, unlike figures like Maula Baksh and Rehmat Khan, um, 
you know, who moved voluntarily for reasons of professional uh, patronage and career opportunities. Partition, in a sense, forced lots of musicians to suddenly leave their ancestral lands and uh, move to either side of the border. And given that musicians in South Asia have primarily come from Muslim backgrounds, uh, the direction of migration was mostly east to west, which is not to say that there are no Hindu or Sikh musicians. Uh, there are, uh, there is a significant number of those as well who migrate from West Punjab to East Punjab and from essentially from what is today Pakistan to what is now India. Uh, but the largest wave of migration occurred towards the West and towards especially to the city of Lahore, which was already a cultural capital. And in a sense, with partition, it gains, in a sense, a lot more of these musician families. And most famously, of course, from the Patiala Gharana itself, musicians like Ustad Fateh Ali, Amanat Ali Khan, who were employed at the Patiala court, move to Lahore, to the West. Um, and, um, and, and so do people like Ustad Salamat Ali, Nazakat Ali from the Sham Charasi Gharana, which is uh, located again in East Punjab near Hoshiarpur. Um, and, and, and this is a sort of upheaval which, uh, uh, you know, and how this affects music is something we are still uh, still discovering. It is, a, it is part of my ongoing research into partition in music. Uh, what is really interesting to see is how musicians' life stories reveal very a very different kind of nostalgia uh, from from that we see elsewhere. What we find in stories of musicians' lives is a double nostalgia. First, firstly, there's a nostalgia for pre-partition Punjab, where there was sort of greater communal harmony in a sense. There was more, uh, for lack of a better word, there was more syncretism, or to use Farina Mir's. Uh, um, you know, more precise term, there was a shared space of cultural exchange. Um, however, musicians were equally nostalgic for the feudal past, for the past where you had uh, royal courts and big zamindars and landlords and landowners patronizing them and uh, giving them handsome remuneration, which is something that crumbles with, in a sense, with the arrival of the modern state, with middle class patronage. Uh, the, the nature of patronage now changes. Musicians' employment is a lot more precarious. It is a lot more uh, closely tied now with things like the radio or with cinema or with state broadcasting uh, agendas. And uh, this was evident, uh, in especially in both India and Pakistan, but especially in 1950s Pakistan, when there was an attempt to uh, rid uh, classical music of Hindu reference in a bid to sort of, uh, uh, you know, make the culture of this new nation more visibly Islamic. And this upset a lot of classical musicians, uh, foremost among them Ustad Bade Ghulam Ali Khan, who was also of the Patiala Gharana, but he came from an allied allied strand of the Patiala Gharana, which is uh, the Kasur Patiala Gharana, because his, um, his hometown uh, was the city of Kasur, which is the twin city with Lahore, which is again in West, uh, West Pakistan, uh, sorry, West Punjab in Pakistan. And um, he had he had learned from his uh, 
grandpair his grandfather and his father in the kasur tradition but they were also related to the patiala family so he then became the uh, uh, flag bearer of the patiala gharana and became one of the most famous exponents of the patiala lineage in the 20th century ustad bade gulam ali khan was upset by this uh, drive to uh islamicized music and for example if a, if a rag is called rag durga this you know durga is a deity in the hindu pantheon this is something that some of the reformers of music in pakistan wanted to change and uh ustad bade gulam ali khan objected and uh 10 years after partition so partition happens in 1947 uh, in around 1957 58 he is offered Indian citizenship by the Indian uh, leader Muraji Desai and the Indian Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru. So Sadat Bade Gulam Ali Khan then moves to India, and in fact, he dies in India in the uh, state of Hyderabad in 1968. Um, and so, in a sense, he is somebody who, uh, for the majority of his life, was a citizen of undivided India. and for 10 years of his life he is a pakistani citizen and for the last 10 years of his life he is an indian citizen and in a sense uh, he belongs to both nations and to neither because of his uh location and i think he famously said that if one child in every home was taught classical music uh this country would not have been partitioned and i think it's a it's a sort of uh, romantic nostalgic statement but it also shows you uh, how what he's really critiquing is the violence of partition he's not going into the high politics or to the big political reasons behind you know a separate homeland for the indian muslims he's not going into the big reasons of history but he's saying that if if there was uh, this sort of musical training that we could have probably raised uh, children who were more sensitive and we may we would have perhaps not witnessed the scale of violence and barbarism that we did in the riots and his own family half of his family was in kasur and some of them moved uh, to india so again his family was divided across these borders and it's something he keenly felt throughout his life but i think what i want to uh, argue with figures like ustad bade gulam ali khan and so many other musicians who constantly traverse the border and subverted the border the the punjab border is that they were musical citizens they appealed to audiences that uh, equally loved uh, pakistani and indian musicians it's seen as a common cultural heritage so there's this idea of a musical citizenship which cuts across uh, these antagonistic visions of either indian uh, citizenship or pakistani citizenship um and i think along with musical citizenship we need to you know along with this category of musical citizens we also need to keep in mind another category of custodians uh, and these people who are the patrons and festival organizers who keep this cross border exchange going who keep this friendship across borders uh alive and i think these are the people who then invite uh musicians from across the border to come and perform in either country and i think it's it's animated by a sense of um of uh, of preserving the cultural cultural 
gifts and the cultural tradition of the other community. It's it's done out of respect. It's done out of great regard. And uh, it's it, it's a really interesting field of inquiry as well. And how did the audiences respond to that? So I think the audiences also responded with a sense of great longing for the musicians who had now who were now inaccessible and who were now in a sort of rival country and this is evident uh, in the fans of famous musicians like Noor Jahan Madam Noor Jahan who was uh, you know was the Malika Mosiki of Pakistan she was the equivalent of Lata Mangeshkar in Pakistan and uh, there are newspaper reports which show us how uh, how often the people of Bombay which is where she was based before partition she was punjabi but she was uh, working in the bombay film industry in at the eve of partition and uh, there are news reports from the 50s which say that oh at the film fair um, film fair awards function one of the main attractions is going to be noor jahan who's going to travel from pakistan and come and sing for her former fans and uh, this is uh, you know published in the newspaper to lure uh audiences to the awards but uh there is no in fact she doesn't come in the 50s or 60s she doesn't come to india until the 80s when there is a sort of major anniversary of all india radio and a lot of um uh musicians uh, who were part of all india radio before partition travel to india as part of this major event um and similarly roshnara begum who was a famous classical musician and vocalist she also had legions of fans who yearned to listen to her in india and again she rarely traveled and the only occasion that we have heard of her traveling to uh, india on the rare occasion is of her coming to the harwalab music festival in jalandhar uh, which i mentioned earlier and she um, the reason she agreed is because her husband who was a, a policeman knew ashwini kumar uh who was also a policeman and highly decorated policeman in india and these two men knew each other from being employed in the sort of british uh police system before partition uh so those connections then are interesting in how they uh show you uh, the ways in which people use these connections to ensure a broad musical citizenship and people like ashwini kumar in india or hayat ahmed khan in pakistan these were the post colonial custodians of uh, mu- of music uh, and in a sense uh, you know i i use the concept of post colonial custodianship from the lit- the post colonial literature scholar menodzi filippo menodzi who says that being a custodian means having a responsibility for the other which constitutes acts of cultural inheritance so you see yourself as an inheritor of uh, the you know the cultural riches of the other community and you need to think of the transmission of these cultural riches without seizing it or without appropriating it for your own purposes in a sense you're representing this cultural tradition to an audience that has been uh robbed of uh, enjoying it or has been uh, alienated from it so this is how custodianship then functions through these people who have to fight really hard to ensure that musicians have visas to travel to the other country and they're um you know safe during their travels to either india or pakistan and they can perform 
uh, without any uh, hitches. So I think this is how, uh, you know, musicians are very key to subverting the borders of a partition. And now even more with, with digital age, with YouTube, with uh, the internet, this has become even larger in terms of bringing audiences uh, from both sides closer together. Well, thank you so much, Radha Kapoorja, for such a fascinating introduction to the study of the topic on colonial music in Punjab. It's been fascinating to read your work and plan for this episode, and a pleasure to have you on as a guest on the podcast series here we are trying to develop. You have a plethora of publications and research on topics like this and many others, so it would be a really great honour to have you back on in the future to discuss some of those other areas of Punjab's rich history. And last but not least, I would like to thank our sponsor, Six Student Learning, and the tens of thousands of followers across our social media channels that continue to motivate us to actively record and share Sikh history. We hope to continue to keep recording more podcasts and make more Sikh history accessible in audio format. So if you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please share with others so that we can attract more supporters that in turn help us to generate more episodes. Thank you. Thank you.